I grew up surrounded by castles with fabulous stories of kings and princes and princesses. In fact, my hometown books in Switzerland boasts a castle from the 13th century. Maybe we can put up the picture. We visited the castle on the hill many times as kids and were awed by the thick walls and high towers. Looking out of my bedroom window, I could also see Schloss Fadutz over the Rhine River in the tiny dukedom of Liechtenstein. The Duke of Liechtenstein and his family still live in the castle, and to our delight, we were able to watch fantastic fireworks shot off from the castle into the night every year on his birthday. I have not been invited inside the castle, though, for some reason. I also lived under a monarchy for 23 years, first under King Hassan II, then upon his death under Mohammed VI. We lived very close to one of his many palaces, and many of our neighbors were descendants of palace guards. We experienced what it's like to live in a kingdom from traffic chaos when the king came to town, to whitewashed walls along his route, to his portrait hung prominently in every public building, to the fear of criticizing the monarch or his family. Kings means power, authority, wealth, unapproachability, guards and walls, beautiful palaces, far removed from the commoners' messy lives. You might not relate to kingship much, apart from news stories of the royals' not-so-royal lifestyles. But we all do understand someone or something ruling over us. How can a tiny piece of chocolate have so much power over me? Or images, or substances, or bitterness, or shiny objects. These rulers are not as obvious, but can nonetheless have a very powerful grip on our lives. The main question we want to think about this morning is this. What does it mean for us today that Jesus does not only claim to be our Redeemer and our Savior, but also our King. We will examine three things. First, the King promised, God's promise to David of an everlasting throne. Then the King came, how Jesus fulfilled this promise, and then the King will come, how Jesus will return as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It all starts with a good king. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us we were created to live in a perfect world in which all things were made very good and all relationships were harmonious and whole because God was king. Even the greatest king of Israel, King David, proclaimed Yours, Lord, 
is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Can we put up the slide? Thank you. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. The psalmists proclaimed God's universal kingship. For the Lord Most High, it says in Psalm 47, is awesome, the great king over all the earth. But it didn't take very long for the story to turn sour. Our ancestors decided they were going to be their own king. Instead of living in the wholeness and light of the good king, we chose self-rule, autonomy, and decided we knew better. Why do we need a king? Aren't we doing just fine on our own? I'm my own boss. This rebellion against the true and good king distorted all our relationships with our creator, with our neighbor, with ourselves, and with the creation. But we do have memory traces of a good king. We long to return home. We sense that we are foreigners and pilgrims here. On some level, we are all homesick. Many, many legends and stories speak of this. The rightful king will come back to put everything right and to renew the world. Just think of Tolkien's The Return of the King. We get glimpses of it sometimes. Like I get glimpses of my home country when I hear somewhere on the bus someone speaks with German. We get glimpses of the lost paradise when we see selfless acts, sacrificial love, grace, and truth. Streaks of glory shining through the cracks. In our rebellion against the rightful king, we turn to worship other things because it is our nature. We are made to worship. And unfortunately, there is no shortage of fake kings with false promises of fulfillment and peace. This innate longing in us for connection and wholeness is duly exploited by pseudo-saviors. But because of God's infinite love for us, he did not abandon his people, but he remained faithful to them and promised rescue. Jacob blessed his son Judah with these prophetic words. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. God promised King David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. 
the Old Testament anticipated this promised king from the line of David, foreshadowing a greater king, a greater David. But there is no other prophet that spoke of the coming deliverer, the Messiah, the Messiah in Hebrew, more than Isaiah. He lamented the state of the ruler sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem during his lifetime. Very few in Israel's kingly line reflected the true king's heart. Some had become outright murderers and thieves. In Isaiah 1 we read, See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice, righteousness used to dwell in her, but now, murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Sound familiar? Isaiah then prophesies what the true king would look like. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. What a contrast. And then this incredibly, incredible and seemingly impossible promise in Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Have you ever seen a plant sprouting out of a seemingly dead place like concrete or a wall or a dead tree stump? It's quite remarkable. It's a miracle, really. And since you paid close attention when Andrew read the genealogy of Jesus to us, you remember that Jesse is the grandson of I thought you memorized it. I should ask Andrew. <laughs> He's going <laughs> of Ruth and Boaz. And David the youngest of Jesse's eight sons. The tree of Jesse looked so promising with David and then Solomon on the throne. But alas, the kingdom suffered division and exile. A seeming death blow. A dead stump. The fruit of rebellion. But forward to our passage today. Two mysteries are revealed here the name of Isaiah's virgin, and the name of Isaiah's branch from the stump of Jesse. We are introduced to the virgin Isaiah foretold and learn her name, 
Mary. A simple, rural, uneducated teenager living in Nazareth, a small town in Galilee in northern Israel, a war-torn country under Roman occupation. We learn she's engaged to Joseph from Bethlehem, the city of David, which meant they were legally bound to each other, but they were not living together yet. What a special time for a girl. She must have been preparing for her wedding. Her whole focus would be on the day when Joseph would come for her. And then her life gets interrupted. Her plans get derailed, changed forever. You will conceive a son. God's messenger announces. Let me tell you, pregnancy is dramatic enough under normal circumstances. But this scenario, an extramarital pregnancy, would bring cruel gossip and shame. And the consequences of a sure-to-follow divorce would be devastating. In fact, it could even put her life at risk. As the law regarded a betrothed woman who became pregnant as an adulteress subject to death by stoning. And it gets even wilder. The baby born would be Jesus, meaning savior, as Tim spoke about last week. But that's not all. Her son would be born to be the long-awaited king. You will receive, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. This kingdom will never end. Mary's response? I suspect a cascade of emotions, ranging from shock and fear to curiosity and wonder. And of course, the very practical question foremost on her mind, how will this be? Her response reminds me of a missionary who always responded to crisis situations, of whom there were many, with, I wonder what God is going to do with this. Mary knew conception was impossible apart from God's miraculous intervention, and the angel confirmed it. The Holy Spirit of God will bring it about. Trust God's word, because no word of God ever fails, he told her. I love that sentence. It's literally in Greek, a rema, a dinamos. With God, no word, ah, rema, is without dynamos, without dynamite, without power. Or my personal translation, God's word is dynamite, powerful. Mary is portrayed here not just as a passive instrument, but as one who in saying yes to God, becomes an active agent in God's incarnation. She submits to her king. I am the Lord's servant, she says. From his conception, this king 
did not fit into the world's categories of kingship. A very different king was expected. The Jews had been taught when the Messiah came, he would defeat evil and injustice by ascending the throne of David. The Messiah would deliver Israel from bondage and restore the glories of its golden age. He would set everything right. This explains why his closest disciples failed to grasp his mission. In fact, they were horrified. He would willingly go to Jerusalem to lay down his life instead of kicking out the Romans. But the true king did not come to live, but to die. Not to usurp power, but to relinquish it. Not to lord it over us but to serve. At the heart of the gospel is the cross. Jesus giving his life for us so we could live. This king shows us who God is, the perfect combination of love and truth, justice and mercy, meekness and majesty, willingly lowering himself, the Lamb of God, sacrificing his life for our sins. He who was God became man. He became poor so we might become rich. Jesus told his disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise of authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. We don't have to look far to see what havoc and destruction evil despots can bring. We have plenty of examples on the news every day. And it's not just political oppression. What about our private lives? We all know of the deeper oppression and bondage we can get ourselves into. Captivity of body, mind, and soul. The quasi-king, the thief, only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The true king came to set us free. A king who will not crush us, but who was crushed for us. What a paradox. In our culture, obsessed with self-realization, the cross will always be counterculture. I heard a funny story this week about Roger Federer. This tennis champion, and arguably one of the best tennis players ever, was denied entry into the iconic Wimbledon Stadium, where he holds the records of the most championships won. An overly eager security guard did not recognize him and refused him entry into the tennis kingdom he had ruled supreme. Jesus the king came to his own, yet his own did not receive him. The Apostle Paul summarizes it perfectly in one of my favorite passages who, being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. But wait a minute. There was already a king ruling over the land of the Jews. The fact that Jesus was giving the throne of David placed him in direct opposition to King Herod the Great, a puppet king of Rome, hated by the Jewish population for his arrogance, his brutality, and corruption. He was deceitful and violent in asserting his power. You remember, he responded to the news of a new king by ordering to kill all the boys under two years in Bethlehem. In stark contrast, Jesus is both the legitimate king and heir to David's throne and the son of God conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is able to save his people not just from national enemies, but from their sins. He is the only rightful ruler of the world. And he is the only rightful ruler of our hearts. Jesus is seated on the throne now. And one day he will return as the king and every knee will bow. We heard whispers throughout the Old Testament prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. Then we saw signs of the Messiah fulfilled in the first advent. And we eagerly await his second advent, where his rulership will finally bring healing and renewal to our sin-stained world. Ultimate and consummate return of the king. And all who receive him will be home at last. We will be heirs of his kingdom and reign with him forever. It says in Revelations, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Will we, will you, like Mary, receive him now as your redeemer, as your savior, but also as your king? Jesus, reign in me. Sovereign Lord, reign in me. Captivate my heart. Let your kingdom come. Establish there your throne. Let your will be done. Bring every corner of my heart under your kingship. I'm tired of running my own ship. I'm tired of bondage and shame and guilt. I want to let you rule. 
I want the government to be on your shoulders. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Emmanuel, we welcome you. Don't keep Jesus at the periphery. He's not a consultant we go to for advice or a mere ticket to heaven. Reject pseudo-kings who promise peace but deliver bondage. Surrender freely to the true king who gave his life on the cross for you. Welcome him into the messiness of your life, into your fears, your grief, your loneliness. I have barren situations in my life. I suspect you do too. I've been wrestling this week of what it means to let Jesus not only to be my redeemer and savior, but my king. I think the answer lies in Mary's response. Trusting that God's promises are true and his spirit is powerful to accomplish it. Lord of miracles, we bring you our barren situations. We give you full control and surrender to your will. We're not our own. Holy Spirit, we welcome you to invade all our dark spaces and flooded with your healing light so we in turn can reflect the true king's heart and serve you with joy. It is my prayer that you will receive Jesus, maybe today for the very first time, or maybe anew, to reign in you, to captivate your heart, and to set you free. To all who receive him, he gives the right to become children of God, born not of natural descent, but born of God. What if true royalty does not look so much like this, but more like this? Let's pray.